Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. This is Marcia. And uh, we're sitting in the WBUR offices with Meghna Chakrabarty, host of Radio Boston, as well as the host of the Modern Love Podcast. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today and have the chance to ask you about your career and how you do what you do. It's great to be here and a little weird since usually I'm in your spot. Looking into your background, uh, your educational background and your training, uh, it's not the typical one for a journalist. And so we wanted to ask, starting back then and sort of wending our way through your career, uh, when did you get the inkling that journalism was something you might want to pursue? So you mean it's not normal for a civil engineer to end up (laughs) being a radio journalist? (laughs) Not not among the civil engineer friends that I know. (laughs) Well, uh, just to give people a little bit of background, uh, yeah, my, my degrees are in, in, in civil and environmental engineering, and I have a master's degree in, in, in environmental science and risk mm-hmm. management. And I just, you know, my family was very science and engineering oriented, mm-hmm. and it was great. Like, I still to this day love it, love science and engineering. Um, but as I was, you know, I didn't really think about it much as an undergrad because I just had so much fun in my classes, and then went to grad school as one does. But then as I sort of was working my way through grad school, I, um, I realized that I didn't quite have like this burning passion. I was enjoying what I was learning, but that didn't necessarily translate into this like burning passion to get out into the working world and, and become an, a, like a working engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of a hard realization, but a fortunate one because it was my own dad. He's a scientist. It was my dad who told me years ago, like when I was in high school, he's like, if it, if it doesn't keep you up at night with excitement, because he was talking about bench science. He's like, because it's so, um, it can be so <laughs> fruitless for so many years when you're working on really complex experiments. Like if it doesn't keep you up at night and you're excited about it, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and so I applied that to myself when I was finally in grad school. It's like, it's not keeping me up at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I finished my master's and took, you know, six, eight months to sort of figure stuff out. And while I was doing that, I'd always been a public radio listener. And I wrote a, a le- like an actual paper letter mm. <laughs> to someone here <laughs> whose work I admired yeah. and got to talking and ended up interning here and the rest is history. Wow. So that is how that happened. When you got the inkling to write the letter, um, who are you reaching out to, if I can ask, and and what caught your ear about audio journalism, radio storytelling, rather than print journalism, rather than writing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I can't, I can't say necessarily that, like, there was something about audio that drew me more than print. Um, other than I always had the radio on in my house Mm. and grew up with the radio always being on and just you know it's kind of one of those situations where dumb luck maybe more (laughs) it may be dumb luck more than anything but I'd always had the radio on and there was back in the day WBUR had a documentary series and there was one particular producer who had done a couple of documentaries one was about uh, the city of London and it was just an hour of really great stuff that like you know like it's the same experience that you have with really good podcasts these days you turn it on and you're listening and all of a sudden you don't realize it but like half an hour has gone by or an hour has gone by but you were tr- you're taken somewhere 
So it was sort of the broadcast version of that that I heard 16 years ago. <laughs> um, and so that's, I reached out to her. She's not, she doesn't work here anymore. She's moved, um, moved to Italy, actually. Uh, but she's a great mentor of mine. And I wrote to her and never thought I would hear from her because, you know, like a random letter that you just put in the mail, right. who's going to respond to that? Um, and miraculously, she wrote back. Wow. That's incredible. So then uh, when you, like, started, you were, or I guess after you finished your internship, you were writing primarily about or covering stories related to transportation? Yeah, so that so that jumps ahead a couple of years because after I finished my internship, I first started freelancing as a producer at On Point, um, which was a great experience. I mean, it was like five years of being thrown into really intense pr- news and journalism and production um, during a time where, you know, the, the, the nation was still reeling from 9-11, you know, even years later. The nation was at, we were at war um, in two places, and there was just a lot to talk about. I mean, it's so funny because uh, that's the world that you guys grew up in, right? right? Like, that's been your entire world. But for people, (laughs) you know, like, I'm not in my teens anymore, obviously, (laughs) but it was like a huge change. And so there was like so much news and so much important journalism to be done. And it was my first experience in journalism. And it was amazing and exciting. And it felt like I was accomplishing an important mission. And it was great. And I was a producer. So I was I wasn't on the air at that time. And that was five and a half years of work. Um, And uh, and anyway, so then I knew I wanted to be on the air. And so I tried I made the transition to reporting and yes, reported about transportation here in Massachusetts and the T and the Green Line a lot. (laughs) So So, so if I can ask about that experience, did you have a sense that you were in the middle of a transformation in the industry of journalism? Because those are some of the years where you get this shift because the blogosphere is Mm -hmm. coming into play. And as we see now, we just took a tour through the studio before this podcast and um, it seems like WBUR is investing in podcasts and this uh, sort of new sphere of audio, everyone, you know, we can start a podcast with a simple recorder. And so did you have a sense that you were getting into this at a time where the focus of journalism was shifting to different forms of media? I think that sense came a little bit later, right? Because again, in my first couple of years in this world, it was mostly about like politically and culturally the entire world felt like it had changed mm. right there was still a hole in the ground in new york city a giant hole in the ground and like again from 2002 to 2005 i mean that was like everything mm. um and but you're right during that time out here's a tiny anecdote you're okay with anecdotes yes. so we were all we were at a on-point editorial meeting and we were all sitting there and there was an, a new intern actually who he was he was doing sort of like a little high school internship and he came in he's like we should talk about these things called blogs <laughs> and i remember like you will always no matter what age you're in you will all you'll always notice that when someone has an idea that's unfamiliar to people above a certain age like they just kind of give you this blank stare like <laughs> blogs like what the heck um and i was kind of like on the fulcrum of that blank stare so like half the table was like what's a blog and who cares <laughs> and this kid was like no it's amazing like people are going they talk to each other and they get information out there really quickly and this is of course before twitter or facebook in any meaningful way 
Is okay. this also before like online forums? No, I mean forums were around, but blogs just still felt like a little different. Um, and so I guess that was my first inkling. That was my first inkling because like it was like less than a few months later where all of a sudden there were like some really important blogs. Mm, right. And and I was like, oh, we probably should have listened to him more carefully. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Listen to the youth. Um, so then, how do you? So at during that time, when you were selecting stories or looking for stories to talk about, were blogs a source of like topics? They became a source later, because in the early years. Um, the major concern that we had with using unvetted online sources is that you know we have a standard of journalism that we have to attain with all of our coverage you know fact checking um uh, a sense of expertise and authority and um in the early years when there were a lot of sort of blogs that just popped up it was really hard to know if those people were trustworthy you know, it didn't matter what their perspective was. I don't care where they are in the political spectrum, but like, is their is their point of view trustworthy? Is mm-hmm. that's the that's the thing that we, or is their analysis trustworthy? So that was the the real challenge. Um, so the people who had blogs but were also associated with other organizations, that that helped, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the kind of internal vetting that goes on. But later on, as um, blogs and other online sources developed, you know, and they, they start showing a track record of like, this is good analysis, or this is like newsworthy stuff that they're writing, then it became a little bit easier. How many of your stories uh, come from PR pitches? Almost none. How do you, so then what happens to the emails that you get? I don't read them and they go into my trash automatically. Right. Is that relationship really, um, I guess, you wouldn't trust a PR person for a story or a pitch? So, there's a couple of issues. The The first issue is that we're a news organization, and, um, and PR is not in the business of helping with news. PR is in the business of business. And, um, and so I just naturally come to any PR pitch with a huge amount of skepticism. Uh, and so I don't, not every news organization is like this. And, and I have to say there's a, there's a, we can talk about books separately because PR pitches about books are a little bit different. Um, but we're looking for people who are making news, um, who have, important and smart, relevant things to say about the news. And most of the time, a PR pitch comes to me and A, I know that it was like mass written for a thousand people because there's nothing specific about it to my program. They don't even spell my name right half the time. And secondly, I'm like, who is this person? And why does this person need a public relations agency to get their voice out there? You see, that's like, it's one of those kind of uh, ironic things, but I'm like, if you need to pay someone, to help you get heard, then maybe what you're saying isn't necessarily worth hearing. Digging into this concept of news relevance, how do you weigh 
these things that I think in, in one interview you call timeless news stories, these sort of things that, that are kind of always relevant, um, particularly when it comes to covering a city like Boston, yeah. where if you're digging up like the history of the Boston busing crisis or something like that, that's something that's always relevant and probably falls in line with what inspired you to come into journalism, that sort of mm -hmm. documentary type coverage, versus the stuff that's the pressing news of the day. How do you balance on a program kind of filling the, the, the reader's uh, thirst for knowledge and for, and for history and background versus what's on the cutting edge? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question, and it's probably our greatest challenge. Mm -hmm. um, because I think the what that balance is shifts every day, mm -hmm. depending on what's going on in the world. Like right now, uh, in late February 2018, we need to be talking very intensely and intelligently about guns, right? Right, and because that's now. But this is also one of those issues. Guns is one of those issues that's also timeless. So the truth is, is like, I, I think um, if we're smart about things, we can find the news that is both timeless because of the fundamental nature of the issue that uh, the story is grappling with, plus of intense current meaning because mm -hmm. that's kind of just I mean that's I think that's basic I say that because I think that's what we are as humans like we're all we all grapple with the same things over and over again generation after generation right. and hopefully we make some progress along the way but um, but you know you hear the echoes of history a lot so but that said there's still there's still this thing of like okay well the president said this thing today how much should we talk about that how important is it? Well, he's the president of the United States, so we do need to pay some attention to it. But is it, you know, something that's worth half of our show or not? And I think that it's kind of an experiment every day. And some days we hit it because we absolutely know, like, everyone's talking about this thing, so we need to be part of that conversation. And other days, maybe we, the balance isn't quite right. It's a, it's an art form more than, more than a science. But to you, for example, just to your, um, when you brought up busing in Boston, so that you know, has very, has strong Boston particulars, obviously, mm. but really it's a, it's a story about race, mm. right? And, and so we're going to talk about that a lot forever because right. we have to, um, and, and as a nation we should, and that Boston really needs to. So we're going to do lots of busing stories. The question is, are there new voices that we should be hearing from? Mm -hmm. um, or are there aspects of the story that we should be reintroducing to people now living in Boston who may not be so familiar with it. So there's there's right. a lot of ways to approach it. Right. One of the things that journalists are struggling with right now mm -hmm. is that question of dedicating this much time to what the president said. How much does just talking to other journalists or developing a community of people for you to maintain your own personal independent thought help when you're making these sorts of judgments in an era where I mean, to be frank about it, the president is starting to, or not starting to, we, are, we have a president who's saying things that presidents haven't said in the past. And it's hard to refrain from covering the circus uh, to the extent that you need to be informing listeners about that timeless issue. And so how do you manage to keep a space of independent thought and open thought so you can maintain your judgment when you're in the newsroom? Yeah. Um, so I think that this is a really challenging time for people in this business because 
the short answer to your question is how, how do you make room for that independent thought is through courage. Mm -hmm. The courage to not do certain things. The courage to say, no, that was simply the president speaking off the cuff. And yeah, he's the president, but he's going to move on to a different thought in an hour. Look, that courage is hard <laughs> because we are awash in media. We being like all humans are awash in media. And so when literally everybody is, it feels like everybody's talking about the president having called a former Parkland uh, police officer a coward. Right. Like, do we not talk about that? So uh, I have to say, I, I struggled with that. We did a half an hour conversation about it. We on our show just right. earlier this week. Um, and, uh, that's the moment where I try as desperately as I can to remind myself and my team, okay, so there's a, there's a lot of emotion around this particular word and yes, the most powerful man in the country uttered it, but do we focus on, on the cowardice issue or is there a way to sort of use the opportunity that the president has given us to actually explore something deeper? So what we did is we, you know, we said, yes, the president uh, said cowardice, etc. Uh, and we got a former Massachusetts police chief to come and talk to us about, okay, well, hang on. The truth is, is like very few of us are ever going to be in the line of fire. You're a police officer. What kind of training do you need? What kind of training do you get such that in those moments you can do your duty? And it was really, he was great. It was a really interesting conversation. Right. Um, so I think those, when we get that right, it, it really adds value and it's a service to people who are listening because it's not just a, like an emotional reaction to, yeah, that, that police officer was a coward. How could he do that? 17 people got killed because that tragedy is a fact. But what we, what I want to help us understand is, okay, but what do we mean when we say these things? Who is, what training did that person get? How can we be sure that law enforcement officers in the future get what they need so that it doesn't happen again? Like, put us in the shoes of the people who are in the line of fire. So that, I mean, that's, that's how I, I try to feel like, I, I hope we try to maintain some integrity uh, or a lot of integrity and, and independence of thought. Right, you, you said being a wash in media and one of the questions that's come up when we've talked to journalists in the past is the notion that journalists are now attached to Twitter. It's, it's necessary, right? <laughs> yeah. And so do you view it as a tool, as a hindrance? Uh, how does it affect the way you consume media? And how do you maintain a healthy balance when you have these algorithms you know, producing uh, a certain stream of content for you? Yeah, um, the algorithm question I, I don't have an answer to because right. um, you know, I, it, it irks me that I'm not in full control over, you know, what order the tweets come into my stream. Right. Like, um, but I, you know, I, I organize who I follow by category. So that, that helps a little bit at least. Twitter is a very useful tool for breaking news. It's an extraordinary useful tool for breaking news. Um, and funnily enough, I find it to be most useful for local breaking news because there's like, you know, there's a lot of places around town where, um, you know, we're not going to see it pop up on the television, right. but I might see some local people that I follow, like put a tweet out and I'll be like, wow, that's really interesting. 
you know, a good example is uh, in the federal court in Boston, you can't record anything. They now allow you to have electronic equipment in there, but uh, you, the real-time reporting is coming through reporters doing tweets. So that's really interesting. Um, uh, so it's really, really useful for breaking news. And of course, you know, if you're really sophisticated about your Twitter searches, you can probably find new voices as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by fo- focusing on certain locations, words, etc. Like you can do deep searches, and it's really great. Mm-hmm. I also tend to use Twitter as kind of a reporter's notebook in a way, like when I'm just out there reporting, I, I might put tweets out that aren't really a polished story, but it's stuff that's happening and I go back and look at it. But it's interesting that you brought up this question because my how I use Twitter is going to change pretty soon because I'd have to look up who wrote this, but someone wrote a really excellent article about because social media is a business that relies on engagement, that it encourages journalists to tweet in a way that um, prioritizes engagement over actual journalism. Right. And I look back at my, my own Twitter feed, I'm like, I've been sucked into that. Right. So I'm going to stop doing that, which means my feed's going to get a lot more boring. Yeah. But it's going to be only in service to the actual journalism that we do. Right. And de- but doesn't that even create a competition? You know, you're looking at, for example, the headlines sometimes of the New York Times... And they are—they almost seem like they're trying to incite the reader to read the article. Yeah. Because the New York Times headlines are in competition with the level of, of you know incitement or engagement that you need to get on. Twitter, yeah, even worse, Facebook. the push notifications, which are even shorter, right? Exactly. Or can be shorter. Exactly. Yeah. So do you think that, well, it sounds like Twitter does facilitate a lot of aspects of your job, but at the same time, it really seems to be about finding a balance I guess, between how much of an asset it is and how much it might be affecting like your values related to your work. And so how does that, um, how do you find like, or stay, stay mindful of kind of this news environment that we're in um, and how it is expressed through like social media and the 24 hour news cycle and uh, your work? Um, how do I stay mindful? I turn it off. I have two young kids, right? And so when I go home, I put my phone in the closet and I don't use it Mm. uh, until they go to bed. So that's actually really, really important. Um, because I mean, I could be chained to it all the time and be like constantly (laughs) triggered by stuff. But, um, in order to stay mindful and wise and have perspective, I think you need to step away from it. So that's one thing. Um, I mean, the other thing is, uh, I'm not on, I mean, if we're talking social media more broadly, I'm not really on Facebook because I, I'm, I'm, to be perfectly honest, other than the journalistic use of Twitter, I'm kind of a social media skeptic. I do think it's a horrible cesspool of um, <laughs> humanity's worst impulses that are only amplified by anonymity. Okay. So um, smart people can use it very intelligently and we've obviously seen social movements being organized through right. social media so i recognize it as a hugely important tool but i you know i am also just personally concerned about its very dark downsides right. as well we do work here at wbur but you have this interesting collaboration with the new york times mm-hmm. on the modern love podcast first can you take us through how that collaboration began uh, i know the 
uh, the column had existed before the yeah. podcast. And so how did you get in touch with the New York Times and how did they come to you with this project? And then also, how is the form of storytelling different? Uh, you know, during the day you have this very, what we called beforehand, a quick volley on live radio. But then when, you're, when you've got the story beforehand and you need to structure it and build a narrative and bring people's personal voices and experiences into the story, how does that change the way you approach the storytelling aspect. Yeah. Uh, so to the an- to answer your first question, um, someone here at WBUR had the idea of tr- of making Modern Love into a podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, it took several years of negotiation with the New York Times mm-hmm. uh, to convince them that it was a good idea. But they they came around and and everybody loves it now. So. Uh, because you know the New York Times is an enormous, huge, worldwide organization, and Modern Love is one of their most popular columns um, in the paper, and they they love it and didn't want people to screw it up, mm. and so uh, you know it we had it took a little bit of work, but we convinced them like, hey, we're first of all we're huge fans of the column, second of all we have like some of the best radio professionals anywhere here working on it. And third of all, our, our, our idea is to use the particular strengths of audio as a medium to bring to life these essays um, in, in a new way. And so that's, that's, what, the, that's what it does. Now, um, so really the, like, how did we make it happen is a, more of a business and negotiation story right. than anything else. Right. Um, now to your question about, you were asking me about how is it different? The storytelling. Yeah. So modern love is a really unique thing, and I'm not sure I have much uh, useful to say about it. You should talk to those guys who actually make it, because I kind of tend to come in late in the process. Mm. But um, in terms of... We first of all get to start out with an amazing product, which is an existing modern love essay, which has been beautifully edited by Dan Jones, right? So he's done a huge amount of work already. He's found the great stories. He's helped, he's worked with the writers so that the narrative arc is already in there. It's, it's, a, it's a finished product in a sense when it right. comes to us. So our job is to find, you know, to match the right essay with the right reader um, and then to use again the tools of audio to enhance the words for the essay portion. And then in the second half of the podcast, when we go back to the, the original writers and say, you know, what's your life like now? What lessons did you learn? Um, that too has to have its sort of its own sort of arc. But depending on depending on what that person's current story is, that arc can change a lot. So how is that different than the back and forth volley of a news conversation? I mean, it's utterly different. Right. So my my goal when I'm doing the the day's news or you know a conversation about social issues is to provide analysis um facts right waysides <laughs> yeah yeah right. pers- different perspectives yeah. exactly um and a, you know a, a narrative story a narrative personal essay um is you know opens our eyes and our hearts and our ears but it's just it's an entirely different creature right so right Actually, on on the point of bringing in different sides, and we've got just a few more minutes yeah. here, but I, I wanted to ask you, in, in a world like this where things are very polarized, mm-hmm. and sometimes the point of view that's being represented in the news just might not have a sensible 
other side. How do you bring that balance to news stories without just saying, you know, let's take someone from the Democrats and someone from the Republicans. Let's take someone from the NRA and someone from the, you know, uh, gun regulation lobby. Without just doing this sort of basic, let's look at the label and the job position they have and get people from both sides and say we covered both sides of the story. How do you approach actually teasing out the balance in the coverage? Yeah, so I guess the the first question that we ask ourselves um, is, what are we trying to balance? Hmm. Are we simply just trying to balance political viewpoints? Okay, and, and a lot of times that is what we're trying to do and it's important. Right. Um, or are we simply just trying to balance like crazy versus not crazy? Right, <laughs> you know? right. So, so once, you, once we have a strong understanding of what is it that's requiring the balance, then it becomes a little easier because sometimes it's not just right-left. Um, sometimes it's... Uh, like just yesterday, we had two former Boston city councilors on who were debating about whether or not a middle class can exist in, in right. Boston. Right. They're on the same side of the political spectrum, absolutely, but they have very different views on, uh, on urban development in this city. Mm. Um, so that, so like that's the balance we needed. I didn't need a Republican to come in and tell us, you know, to, to counter the, um, the view about the middle class that our, our main guest had. Um, and then also sometimes there are just issues that I don't actually think we need to balance in that moment, mm. right? Like, like sometimes we're going to be talking to a member of the Massachusetts delegation and we have an all-democratic delegation. Do I need to necessarily get a Republican on that day? Maybe not. Right. But when you look broadly, as long as I feel like we're giving fair voice to every to as many people as possible then then I'm okay I'm okay with that so you know two days later we might have a Republican on and no Democratic response that makes a lot of listeners mad I have to say really it does yeah because some people want 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 balances balance immediately right. but I do think that um, you have to ask yourself again balancing what right. final question for the host of Radio Boston is that we have we're we have a student audience and we have people that come from far and wide to come to BU and a lot of yeah. other campuses in town how do students coming to Boston, plugging into WBUR for the first time or other local news sources, really cut through the media haze to get through the local issues and to get to know their community on that level? Oh, it's a really super great question. Um, well, first of all, I, I mean, see, the funny thing is we have the we have broadcast, we have podcast, and we have online. And I would say, you know, like you guys have got your own very crazy wild schedules and if you can't catch everything on our broadcasts um and if you're specifically speaking locally like you know take some time to look at the website to at wbr.org because all our stories are there and you can just sort of search for what you're interested in mm-hmm. um listen to my show <laughs> three o'clock maybe you're, even if you're at the gym at three like that's okay right um listen to my show uh and you this is where social media is useful like right. you know follow follow local reporters right um as many as you can as many as you want to uh because boston really does have quite a vibrant local journalism um community we're really lucky into right. that in that of uh in that sphere so i would do that um yeah that is that is that helpful? That definitely is. That like definitely read is. the newspaper. And listen, yeah, exactly. You know, listen to the radio. Exactly. I'm I'm getting you know frankly a little heated because they cut out the Boston Globe subscription, the print edition at school, and it, it's it's somewhat frustrating. But um, yeah. anyways, thank you thank you for your time and taking us through your career and 
how you approach all of these issues. It was really a pleasure. I hope it was useful. I mean, the one the one thought I would leave you with is, uh, if anything, I'm realizing that the further I get along in my career, um, the less I actually know, and the right. more I have to learn. Right. Uh, so take everything I've said with a grain of salt, but just know that uh, I feel really deeply that what we try to do here every day, we hope adds value to people's lives. And so if we, if we hit that mark every once in a while, we're, we're on the right track. Well, Radio Boston's on at 3 o'clock on weekdays, and until the next time, we'll keep looking for the coming thread. Oh.